Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. We really focused on four colors this weekend. We focused on green, black, and red on Good Friday, and today we're going to focus on white. I want to introduce you to someone that you, some of you may know, others of you may not, and, and that is the famous London Baptist preacher, and his name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and some of you may know who he is, and he created what, or really developed or invented what we know as the wordless book. And the wordless book he created was a series of colors that he used to tell the gospel message, to describe what Jesus Christ did for us. Green representing creation, perfection, what God intended humanity and this world to be. Black symbolizing our sin and and our depravity and our need for a savior. And red representing the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood that needed to be shed so that we could be forgiven. And we focused on that on Good Friday. And then white, symbolizing forgiveness, purity, what what God sees us as through Jesus Christ. And so he created this, this picture of what salvation was through colors. And the time that it was created, there wasn't necessarily what we experience today, like the racial tensions that we see in the headlines every day, Uh, maybe the racial prejudice that you experience on a daily basis that seems to flow unceasingly, and maybe that affects you. And sadly to say, and it wasn't this way at the time that Charles Haddon Spurgeon created this wordless book, where races are simply described as colors. And I don't know about you, but I felt a tension in my heart just to get up this morning and explain a reality that I'm sure you all are aware of, but I wanted to be explicit about it, that Indians are not red, Africans are not black, Norwegians are not white. Like, I'm Puerto Rican and I'm pretty white. And, and oftentimes when we refer to races as colors, it's a very insensitive, unhelpful, unhelpful way. And what I just want to say out of the gate this morning is that people are precious. They're precious. They're not colors. They're precious. They're not a single pigment. People are precious. And so when we use those colors on Good Friday and even talk about white today, we don't talk about race. When we talk about the beautiful thing that Jesus Christ did for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and I've entitled this message, White, Jesus is Alive. Now, white can mean a lot of different things, and For hundreds of years, if you were in a battle and you were losing and you saw that there was no hope for you to win that battle, they would take a white sheet and they would wave it around and this would symbol not victory, but actually surrender and defeat. 
But what I want you to understand today is when we talk about white today, we don't talk about surrender, we don't talk about defeat, we don't talk about a loss of hope, but when we talk about white today, I want you to understand that it, it symbolizes that Jesus is alive and we're not defeated, but that we have victory because Jesus was victorious. And I found it interesting that when you look in the Bible at how white is described, it's always described in a way of victory, of triumph, of forgiveness. Let me just read you some passage of scripture quickly. Psalm 51.7 says, I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your skin's sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Daniel 7.9 says, his clothing was white as snow, speaking of Jesus, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Revelation 3, the book of Revelation talks about white over and over and over again as a picture of victory, of triumph, of forgiveness. Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And Revelation 19, 11, talking about when Jesus Christ comes back one day, says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it, speaking of Jesus, is called faithful and true. White symbolizes that Jesus is alive. So hopefully you're at Luke 24, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. If you're there, say, I'm there. Let's look at verse 1. Luke says this, But on the first day of the week, on Sunday at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So that word dazzling literally means shining, glittering, radiant. In the other gospels' accounts, it's the, these angels are described as wearing white. So if you're wearing white, a bright color, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you're dazzling. Yeah, guys, you can be called dazzling. Take it, take one for the team today. Dazzling. And it's interesting that when we look at this, that every account, as I mentioned, in the gospel points out this color, white, dazzling, radiance. But I believe it points out the color not because the point of it is white, but the point is what the color represents, that Jesus is alive. Look at verse 5. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the thir on third day and rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what 
had happened. Here's what I want you to get today as we look at this passage of Scripture in Luke 24. This reality, this statement that Jesus is alive. Would you say that with me? Jesus is alive. That's what I want you to see today. That's why we're wearing white today. It's for us to walk out of here understanding, remembering, maybe for the first time believing that Jesus is alive. And so here's what I understand is in a crowd this size is that you may have come in here today and you may approach the resurrection in many different ways. You may approach it as a reality today and you celebrate that Jesus is alive. You may come in today and you're discouraged and you're despondent and you're frightened in the story and we're going to touch on that and, and things are not going well for you and you're struggling whether to believe in the events in your life that, that Jesus truly is victorious and that he's alive. Or you may be here today, and I'm so glad that you are, and you may be here today and you're like, well, this is really a holiday, but I'm not true, sure it's a reality. See, there's a lot of skeptics out there, and they can be all over the TV that would point and say, Jesus' resurrection didn't happen. Have you ever been on the History Channel or Discovery Channel and you're flipping through, and I don't know why I always watch those, because I always get so fired up. But I watch those, and they'll point out things like this. Well, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and every one of the Gospels describe the resurrection differently. Let me give you some differences. They'll say, well, in Matthew, you have two women going to the tomb and only one angel appearing. In Mark, you have three women going to the tomb and only one angel. In Luke, you have more than three women. You saw that, right, when we read these verses. And you see two angels. And in John, you only have one woman, but you have two angels. And, and you have in John that it says that the women went and told the disciples immediately. And Matthew and Luke say that they're, they're afraid and they don't go tell them immediately. And, and they point to those different discrepancies or different tellings of the story. And they say, aha, the resurrection can't be true because all of these stories are told differently. Now think about this. Think about a football game that you watch. And if you don't like football, just bear with me, okay? So you're watching, you're watching a football game or, or another sport or, or some, some event, and you're watching that event happen. And, and I can be watching a football game with a group of, of guys and ladies, and, and I can say, man, they won that game. Did you see how great that running back was? Do you see how many yards he ran? Did you see how he, he hit the hole that the offensive line set for him? Did you, did you see how he just ran over those individuals? I mean, they won that game because of that running back. Someone else can watch that game sitting in the same living room that I am or, or the same uh, place that you're watching it as you are. And they can say, man, did you see that defense? Did you see where those linebackers sacked the quarterback over and over again? The way the defensive lineman went around the edge? Some of you are like, I have no language, no idea what language you're talking right now. Stick with me. And you, we can all watch the same game, but we can emphasize different aspects of the game. But here's the reality. No matter what aspects we, we emphasize of the game, the reality is that the game was still won. And so when I look at these accounts and I see the different things that are emphasized, or maybe one angel is emphasized over two, or three women are emphasized over two, or a crowd of women are emphasized over a few, what I'm seeing is, is these, these writers are emphasizing what stuck out to them. But if I read every account, here's one thing that doesn't change. Jesus 
rose again. And I think it's interesting that if I read through the Gospels and every single account was exactly alike, that would raise my eyebrow that maybe there was something going on there. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, who was one of the apostles who came to Jesus Christ later on after this story. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and 6, it said, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared more than 500 brothers, that's just men, who knows the amount of women, 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. So when Paul writes this, he says, here's why I know the certainty of the resurrection, because I've seen them, the disciples have seen them, and you can go talk to more than 500 people, and they've seen them, and most of them are still alive. Listen, if I have 500 people tell me something has happened, I'm probably paying attention. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, person who created the wordless book, says this about the resurrection. He says, herein is a marvelous thing. He was master, speaking of Jesus, over death. Even when death seemed to have mastered him, he entered the grave as a captive, but left it as a conqueror. He was compassed by the bonds of death, but he could not be held by them. Even in his burial garments, he came to life from those wrappings he unbound himself. From the sealed tomb, he stepped into liberty. If in the extremity of his weakness, he had the power to rise out of the sepulcher and come forth in newness of life, what can he not accomplish now? And so as we look at today this reality that Jesus is alive, what I want you to understand is three things. And here's the first one. That because Jesus is alive, he has the power to bring for you what is dead to life spiritually. Spiritually. Would you look back at what we see in verses 6 and 7 of Luke 24? The the angels say to the women that are at the tomb, he's not risen. Or he's, he's not dead, he is risen. Remember how he told you. And then look at what they emphasize. It says, remember this, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. Why did Jesus have to live a perfect life, have to die on the cross for my sins, and raise himself from the grave three days later? Listen to me. Here's the reasons. Because God is holy, and I'm not. Because God is holy, and I'm not. And you're not. And we love to think that that we are good in and of ourselves. We love to think that when we get to heaven or whatever that may be, that that there'll be the scale and and if the good outweighs the bad that I've done, that hopefully I'll get in to whatever is out there. But what we need to understand this morning is that God is perfect and you and I are not. In Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 says this, The Lord looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And they all, how many? All. That we all have turned aside. Together they, we, have become corrupt. And there is no one that does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have sinned. 
And I know you could be sitting out here today if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you could say, wait a minute, I know I've done good. I know I've done good. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. I volunteer my time. I even give to charities. I'm a good dad. I'm not a perfect dad, but I'm a good dad. I'm a good mother. And I would say those things are so important. And I applaud you for those things. But Isaiah 64, 6 says that any good deeds that I do before a perfect and holy God, he views as a polluted garment because no matter how much good that I do, it can't take the reality away that I've sinned and I sinned. And the reason why Jesus Christ had to live for me and die for me and be risen for me is because God is holy And you or I are not. But here's another reason. Because God loves you. God loves you. Say that with me. God loves you. Let's make it more personal. God loves me. That's why he came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. It's because God loves you and he loved you more than anyone else can love you and he loved you more than your spouse he loves you more than your kids he loves you more than your girlfriend or boyfriend he loves you more than it could ever be described in human terms Jesus came because he loves you and I love what Romans 5 8 says It says, but God demonstrated, he showed his love to you in this way, that in the midst of my sin, like right in the middle of it, that's when Christ died for me. That he didn't love me when he saw, oh, that person, they can actually be lovable. That I'm going to look in the corridors of time and see some good things that they do. Okay, I will, I will show my love and die for that person. But that verse actually says that God demonstrated his love, not in my best moments, but actually in my worst moments. That in the worst possible thing that you've ever done, as you bring that to mind, that's when Jesus loved you. And so when I read this verse, I read it and I say, but God shows his love for me in this that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for Johnny. I want us to read that and replace us and put your name. Can we do that today? But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for Johnny, for you, for me. Not in my best moments, but in my worst moments. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It's on your screen you didn't bring a Bible this morning, and look away, Paul, the same person that wrote what we just read, the beginning of the message in 1 Corinthians 15, look at how he describes God's love for you and me. He says, and you, that's me, that's you, were dead in our trespasses and sins. That when someone's dead, there's nothing that they could do to come back to life again. They're dead And Paul says, and you and I were spiritually dead. Why? We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among among whom we, there's that word again, all 
once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like before I came to Christ, it was my way. Before I came to Christ, it was what I wanted to do. Before I came to Christ, it was whatever felt good. Before I came to Christ, I want to do what I want regardless of who it affects. Like that's who we are by our nature. And we're deserving of God's judgment. But I think one of the two of the greatest words that is found in all of the Bible are in verse 4. Like I'm going to read the end of verse 4 again and I want you to say out loud the first two words. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, but God. You're here today, and you walk in here, and you say, I don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've cheated. You don't know how I've done this, how I've done that. What I say to you is what Paul says in verse 4, but God, but God. The story doesn't end that I'm a sinner and God is holy, but the story beautifully says God loves me. That because he's alive, he can bring what is dead to life in my life spiritually. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the what? Great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In the midst of my sin, Romans 5, 8, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. That God gave me what I didn't deserve. It was grace. It's grace that saved me. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That the moment that I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, not the good that I've done, but the perfection that Christ did for me, that the moment that I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, not only do I now have a relationship with that holy God as I live and, and, and spend time on this earth, but when I pass and my days are gone and I pass from this life to the next, that I will be with him forever. That's God's love. But look at what else it says. Why did Jesus do this for you? Why did he do it for me? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, towards you, towards me in Christ Jesus. That every day that I wake up is an opportunity for me to experience God's love. And how vast it is, and how rich it is, and how boundless it is, and how beyond measure it is. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Not me. It's not because of you. Through faith, look at this, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. That today, if you say, Johnny, how do you know you have a relationship with a holy God and that you have a home in heaven awaiting you when you pass from this life? What I can say is, well, I want you to see all the good things that I've done. I can't say that. I can't boast. But what I can say is, I can say that I know that I have a relationship with God Almighty, a holy God in spite of my sin, and a home with him forever in heaven because Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, he has the power to bring what's dead to life in me spiritually. But here's the second thing, not just spiritually, but look at this, circumstantially. Look at verses 1 through 5. 
I find it interesting that when we see this story that we read, this resurrection account in Luke, and you see it in the other Gospels a lot as well, the way that the women came to the tomb. See, because Jesus is alive, he has the power to bring what is dead to life circumstantially. And I wonder how many of us sit in this room this morning and circumstances have caused us to believe that God has failed you, that he's failed you, that he can't be relied upon, that his word's not true, that he can't be trusted, and circumstances have caused you to believe that because that's where these women were. They were going into that tomb believing that they were going to meet a Savior who claimed to be that, who died, who, who was rotting who was not risen but was dead. They came to the tomb believing that. They came to the tomb hopeless. They came to the tomb wondering what was going to go on. They came to the tomb saying, what just happened? I thought our Jesus was going to rule and reign. They came to the tomb allowing circumstances to believe that they were going to meet and come to a reality that God had failed. Rather, then remembering what Jesus had said and the promises that he had been given and come to the tomb saying, I know that God is going to show himself faithful. Not that he failed, but that he was going to show himself faithful. I wonder how many of us are there today. I wonder how many of us are saying, God has failed me. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. It seems bleak. It seems dead. It doesn't seem like it can be brought back to life. But what God wants you to understand today is that he can bring what is dead to life circumstantially in your life. God hasn't failed. I wonder of us if we're walking in here today and circumstances have led us to believe that the fear of the unknown is so much greater than everything else. You don't think that these women struggled with that look at what it says in verse 5 it says they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground and the men said to them why do you seek the living among the dead and they remembered his words what i love is the angels what they said to them was not new but told them what they have already heard and called them to remember it i don't know if you realize this or not but do you know that there's 35 over 3500 promises in the bible over 3,500. And I wonder if you're doubting them today. I wonder if you're doubting and the reliability of who God is. I wonder if you're like these women who come to the tomb and you're coming to mourn rather than to celebrate and circumstances have brought you to that place. Because the word remember actually means to call the things you know are true but have forgotten. And I wonder how many of us need today to come and to remind ourselves and to take those circumstances and to take them with us and peer into the empty tomb and remind ourselves, wait a minute, Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, then he has the power to bring what is dead to life circumstantially in my life. Here's the third thing. He has that power not only to bring what is dead to life spiritually for you, circumstantially for you, but here's the third thing, emotionally. Emotionally, look at verses 11 and 12. Like these women, 
They leave the to- they, they go to the tomb fearful. They go to the tomb believing God has failed. But now that they hear and they're reminded of the greatness and awesomeness of what Jesus did, now they leave the tomb not believing that he's failed, but they leave joyous. They don't leave being fearful, but they leave with a certainty and a hope and a victory that Jesus has won. And they go tell the disciples. They're all hiding out. And look at their reaction. It says these words seem to them an idle tale. In other words, they literally looked at these women and said, you're delirious. You're crazy. We saw him die. Circumstances say that God is dead. It's an idle tale. And they did not believe them, it says in verse 11. I wonder today, if you come here emotionally despondent, if you come here discouraged, depressed, hopeless. And what God wants you today to do today is to look at these words. And as you look at these words, it's as if you're peering into an empty tomb and you're reminding yourself, wait a minute. Jesus Christ can bring what's dead to life in me emotionally. Emotionally circumstantially, spiritually. I love what Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, because if you've come in here and you're feeling alone, feeling abandoned, you're feeling hopeless, but Jesus says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know why I can take that promise to the bank? Because Jesus is alive. And because I I hear his words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The writer of Hebrews says, so we can confidently say, like I don't need to be emotionally despondent. I don't need to allow circumstances to control me and make me believe that God's failed or fear the unknown. I can confidently say what? That the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 1 Peter 1 says we've been saved to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That every day that I get up, I can have hope. That even though I don't understand it, we heard that in the testimonies of our baptism, that even though circumstances are hard, even those things don't make sense, that I have a living hope that I cling on to. Why? Because the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. He's alive. And what I want you to understand today and walk out of here today is for you to walk out in victory because Jesus has the power to bring what is dead to life in you spiritually, circumstantially, and emotionally. I want you to turn to Romans 8. And we're going to read verses 31 through 39 together. And you can follow along on the screen, read out loud from the screen, read out loud from your Bible. But I think one of the enemy's greatest tactics to get our eyes off of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us is circumstances and emotions. Listen, emotions are God-given. Praise God for them. But they get dangerous when they get in the driver's seat. 
And what we need to do today is we need to take our circumstances to that empty grave. We need to take our emotions to that empty grave. Those of us who have never placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior need to look into that empty grave and place our trust not in the good that I've done, but in the good that Jesus Christ has done. And Paul says it this way. Would you read it with me starting in verse 31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me on this. Jesus is alive. Say it with me. Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, he can bring death to life for you spiritually, circumstantially, and emotionally. I want every head bowed and every eye closed across this place. No one looking up. And I want to talk, first of all, to you who may be here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've maybe gone to church. You may be served and involved and wherever you may have been, this may be the first time you've ever heard that Jesus loved you, wherever you are, but you say, you know what, I've been relying on religiosity, on the good that I can do to warrant God's favor. But what I understand from his word today is that God is holy and I am not and there's no way that I can have a relationship with a holy God in and of myself. Any good that I do as I heard today is like a polluted garment before a holy God but praise be to God that it says in Ephesians 2, 4 but God, he loves me. So Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth. And so all over this room, I want you to say, if you, I want you to raise your hand if today you say, today I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that he saved me. I believe it's not the good that I do, but in what he's done for me today. And today I place my trust in Jesus Christ. Would you raise your hand all over the place? Yes, I believe. Yes, I place my faith and trust in Christ. Keep it up today. Yes, I'm turning from death to life. It's not the good that I've done. Hold those hands up. Now look at me. Just those that have raised their hand. Right now in the quietness of your seat, I want you to say that I believe that Jesus is Lord. God, I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you died and rose again for me. I believe that you lived a perfect life. And I'm placing my trust in what you have done. 
Because listen to me, listen to me, look at me. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. It's a decision that affects your eternity. And if you've prayed that today, you have now passed from spiritual death. You're not dead in your trespasses and sins anymore. You're alive together with Jesus Christ. Now for the rest of us in this room who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, some of us need to look into the empty tomb again. We've allowed circumstances to lead us to believe that God has failed us. We allowed circumstances to believe that the fear of the unknown is greater than the Jesus who has risen. Some of us have allowed our emotions to overwhelm us, to believe that all hope is lost and even caused us by the way that we live our lives to live it in such a way that our lives symbolize that the resurrection's an idle tale to us. And God wants to remind us that he's alive and he can bring whatever you think is dead to life, circumstantially or emotionally. And so if you're here today and you say, I need once again to be reminded of that Jesus is alive, that he speaks to my circumstances and to my emotions today, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? That today I needed to be reminded that my circumstances don't define God, my emotions don't define God, that he's alive. Father, I pray For us in this room today, we have had the amazing privilege to celebrate that you are risen. You are not dead, but you are alive. And God, I thank you for these people that have raised their hand and indicated that they placed their faith and trust in you as their Lord and Savior. God, I praise you for that, that they have passed from death to life, that you have taken what is old and made it new in their life. For those of us in this room that needed to be reminded God, that you are alive and we need to appear in the empty tomb again and remind us that circumstances and our emotions do not trump the reality that you are victorious and the same power that raised you from the dead lives inside of your children who have placed their trust in you. So God, I thank you for today, for the reminder that you have risen. You are alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.